Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Are you interested in the parts of history that remain a mystery? Do you want to learn more about the historical myths and misconceptions used to prop up false belief today? I'm Nathaniel Lloyd. In my podcast, Historical Blindness, I delve into all of these topics, sharing puzzling tales from the past and examining hoaxes, conspiracy theories, and misremembered events that provide insight into modern politics and religion. New episodes every two weeks. Find historical blindness on most podcast players and platforms. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities well winter is the time of it's it's traditionally the time of death and destruction and uh it's <laughs> never been more true than this morning when the snowplow ran over your raised garden bed yep it's true you know the snow giveth and it taketh away. Now, we had kind of an under-over on how many times he would plow our yard before he ran over that. And um, it wasn't even like it was buried in the snow. We had about maybe five inches of snow. <laughs> um, I said probably it would take five times right. before he'd crush it. And you said, what? I think I said two. Two times. Yeah. You were closer because it was the very first snow plow. Uh, he came in and just obliterated your your garden. Yeah. To be fair, uh, he plows and has plowed our driveway, never asked for anything to do it right. uh, for uh, nine years now. Yeah. So, so it's so really hard to complain. I, I do not. I That's fine. <laughs> I'm not complaining. No. It's fine. <laughs> I'm sure the cost of the plowing would have cost me nine gardens over. So I'm not worried about it. I appreciate the work that he does. I'm fine. We're just blaming it on winter. Yeah. Not, yeah. No, it's it's stupid yeah. Maine winter. It's stupid Maine winter. <laughs> oh, my God. This may be our last winter in Maine. <sighs> Fingers crossed. Yeah. We'll tell you more about that in the not-too-distant future. Um, I go first today. Do you? As far as you know, yes. <laughs> you remember the episode that I did about the great Boston molasses flood? Yes. Yes. And how uh, even to this day, and this was like over 100 years ago, that the streets of Boston were just flooded with with molasses. Um, even to this day, on a hot, humid day on the South End. You can still smell you it. You can still smell it. It got me thinking a little bit about that that sort of, uh, of event. And it wasn't the only time that happened. There was the Honolulu molasses spill. This oh. was more recent. This was in 2013. 1,400 tons of molasses spilled into the Honolulu Harbor. Wow. Uh, the spill was discovered on the 9th of September, 2003. It was caused by a faulty pipe. Now, no one was hurt, at least people. 
26,000 fish and members of other marine species suffocated and died. Oh, God, it must be just as bad as an oil spill. I would think so. Yeah. Although at least it's, you know. A natural, natural. substance. Yeah, well, well, oil's natural too, I guess. But yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> no, you're right. You're yeah, right. Yeah. Then there was the great Pepsi fruit juice flood. What? <laughs> yep. According to Wikipedia, it was a flood of 176,000 barrels. Uh, which is about 7.4 million U.S. gallons of fruit and vegetable juices. And it flooded the streets in Russia and the uh, Don River. It caused the collapse of a PepsiCo warehouse in Russia. Oh my this goodness. was uh, the 25th of April in 2017. I did not even hear about that. I didn't know that Pepsi worked with vegetable juices. I did not either. Maybe it's a Russian thing. Maybe. Could be. Now I'm curious about... <laughs> Soda products across the world. <laughs> well, you could do an episode on that. <laughs> but this little rabbit trail led me to this story. The Great Beer Flood oh. of London. According to an article in Wikipedia, it happened on the 17th of October, 1814. And it took place at the Moe Brewery when one of the 22 feet tall wooden vats of fermenting porter burst. The pressure of the escaping liquid dislodged the valve of another vessel and destroyed several large barrels, they say between 128,000 and 323,000 imperial gallons, which is uh, up to a half, a million and a half liters, um, or 388,000 U.S. gallons of beer released in total. Whoa. Now... This was literally a wave of porter beer. It reached 15 feet high. It was like a black tsunami through the streets of London. Well, yeah. I mean, I've, some of those European porters might as well be molasses. <laughs> That's God, true. like steak in a can. It really is. <laughs> now, the, uh, the, the beer tsunami destroyed the back wall of the brewery and swept into an area of slum dwellings known as St. Giles Rookery. We'll talk more about that. St. Giles Rookery. Yep. My first thought is Hoovervilles. It sounds very much like a Hooverville. Yeah, okay. Now, in the early 19th century, the Moe Brewery was uh, one of two largest breweries in London, along with Whitsbrid. Um, in 1809, Sir Henry Moe purchased the Horseshoe Brewery, now, that's at the junction of Tottingham Court Road and Oxford Street, for those of you who are in, uh, in the UK. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right around there. Moe's father, Sir Richard Moe, had previously co-owned the Griffin Brewery in Liquorpond Street, which is now Clerkenwell Road. Um, <laughs> Liquor Pond sounds dirty. <laughs> Liquor Pond? I don't even know her. <laughs> um, in uh, this area, he had constructed... At the time, the largest vat in London. Uh, it was capable of holding 20,000 imperial barrels of, uh, of beer. Mm -hmm. Now, this was a time when, as a brewery, you were known by the size of your beer vat. Um, it became kind of a prestige thing. I wonder if some of the breweries created like false front beer vats, like like uh, movie sets, like a facade. Yeah, like like a like a hops and barley codpiece. <laughs> All the girls are talking about the size of your vat. The Vintage News reports Henry Mo uh, wanted to uh, take after his father, and so he emulated his father's vat. 
Um, he constructed a wooden vessel. It's about 22 feet high. Yeah. Well, if you're young and you see your father's vat, you're always going to have <laughs> yeah issues. You know, issues. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> now, his vat was capable of holding 18,000 imperial uh, barrels, so it was slightly smaller than his dad's vat. Oh, man. You can imagine the, the chip on his shoulder. Yes. Yeah. So this giant wooden vat, it was held together with iron hoops, and they were about 81 metric tons total of iron to strengthen the vat. Um, it, it was said that more than 200 people, before they actually used the vat to, uh, to brew beer, to demonstrate how big it was, they held a dinner party, a sit-down dinner party inside of it for 200 people. Inside the hoop? Inside the vat. Oh, before they filled it, obviously. Mary Brunton, who was a writer who'd visited the Horseshoe Brewery a couple of years earlier, said uh, one of these casks, which which I saw, measures 70 feet in diameter and is said to have cost 10,000 pounds. The iron hoops on it weigh 80 tons. Wow. And we were told that it actually contained, when we saw it, 18,000 barrels or about 40,000 pounds worth of porter. This was in their prices back in the early 1800s. Okay, so a huge amount. A huge amount. The Moe Brewery only brewed porter, which is a dark beer that was uh, first brewed in London and um, was the most popular alcoholic drink in the capital. Moen Company brewed um, about 102,493 imperial barrels in the 12 months leading up to 1812. Uh, Porter was was put in these these giant vessels to mature for several months. If it was the really good stuff, Mm -hmm. they would leave it in there for up to a year. Now, as it's fermenting, of course, it's it's creating pressure inside the vat. The gases and such. At the rear of the Horseshoe Brewery ran... New Street, a small cul-de-sac that joined onto Diot Street. Now, this was within the St. Giles Rookery. The rookery covered about an eight-acre parcel. And according to a guy named Richard Kirkland, who is a professor at the of Irish literature, it was, quote, perpetually decaying slum, seemingly always on the verge of social and economic collapse. Thomas Beams, the author of the 1852 book, The Rookeries of London, Past, Present, and Perspective, described the St. Giles Rookery as, quote, a rendezvous of the scum of society. They make it sound so lovely. You seem a little classist, sir. At around eight, at around 4.30 that afternoon, October 17th, 1814, George Crick, he was a storehouse clerk at Moe's Brewery saw that one of the 700-pound iron bands around a vat had slipped a little bit. The 22-foot vessel was filled to within 4 inches or 10 centimeters from the top with over 3,500 imperial barrels of 10-month-old porter weighing approximately 32 long tons or 33 metric tons. As bands slipped off the vats two or three times a year, um, this was not an unusual issue. And so Crick, what, the guy who was looking at it, was just told to write a note to uh, his supervisor just to have it fixed later. Okay. You'd think that the bands would be less likely to slip if it was full because it would be like, whoop, you know, like yeah, my pressure. belt's not going to slip down after <laughs> dinner. You know, it's... Yeah, right. Uh, exactly. It's staying put. <laughs> An hour after the hoop fell off, 
Crick was standing on a platform about 30 feet from the bat, holding the note that he was supposed to give to his supervisor, Mr. Young, when the vessel, with absolutely no warning at all, other than the fact that the hoop had slipped, exploded. Oh my gosh. The force of the liquid's release knocked the stop cock from a neighboring vat, and that began to discharge its content. So it was like a um, domino effect. Several, quote, hogsheads of Porter were destroyed. They all discharged their contents, which added to the flood. About 332,000 imperial gallons were released. Oh my God, did Crick survive? Yeah, he survived. Because that's a lot of liquid to just be like coming at you full speed. Yeah, he was fine. People in St. Giles Rookery didn't fare quite so well. The force of the liquid destroyed the rear wall. It was about 20 feet high, 25 feet high, and two and a half bricks thick. And it blew that wall out of the back of the brewery. Some of the bricks from the back wall were knocked upwards and fell onto the roofs of houses in the nearby Great Russell Street. That's incredible force. A 15-foot wave of porter swept into the street, where it destroyed two houses immediately and badly damaged two others. In one of the houses, a four-year-old girl, Hannah Bamfield, was having tea with her mother and another, another child, and the wave swept the mother and the second child into the street. Hannah was killed. In the second destroyed house, there was a wake going on by an Irish family for their two-year-old boy. The boy's mother, Anna Seville, and four other mourners were also killed. Oh my goodness. The beer flowed into cellars, many of which were inhabited. People were forced to climb onto furniture to avoid drowning. From the Vintage News, they said Alan D. Ames, who wrote a book in 95 called The Secret Life of Beer, claimed that, quote, the vat burst with a boom heard five miles away. Whoa. It triggered a deadly domino effect. History.com says... The blast broke off the valve of adjoining casks that also contained thousands of barrels of beer and set off a chain reaction as the weight of 570 tons of liquid smashed through the hogsheads of Porter. All of the people in the brewery survived, although three workmen had to be rescued from the rubble. They were buried under the debris. The superintendent and one of the workers were taken to Middlesex Hospital along with three others. Stories later arose of hundreds of people collecting the beer. There was mass drunkenness for days and even a death from alcohol poisoning a few days later. Jeez Louise. The brewing historian Martin Cornell says that newspapers of the time made no reference to the revelry or the later death. Instead, the newspapers reported that the crowds were well-behaved. Cornell points out that uh, the popular press of the time did not like the immigrant Irish population that lived in St. Giles. So if there had been any misbehavior, it would have been reported. That was his claim. The area surrounding the rear of the brewery showed a scene of desolation. According to him, presents the most awful and terrific appearance equal to which fire or earthquake may be supposed to occasion. Watchmen at the brewery actually found a little way to make some extra money. They charged people to come in and, and view the destruction oh. of the, and the remains of what was what was in there. Man, they were horny for entertainment back then. They were. <laughs> there probably wasn't a touring autopsy theater at the time. Though, so. I will say, I do love YouTube videos of buildings being blown up. Oh, so, come on. You're, you know, you're only I guess, human. I guess I'm no better. Most of the people who died in St. Giles Rookery, 
The bodies were laid out in a nearby yard by their families. The public came to see them and donated money for their funerals. Uh, Collections were taken up more widely for the family, so they kind of took care of their own there. The coroner's inquest was held at the workhouse of the First Giles Parish on the 19th of October of that year. George Hodgson, the coroner for Middlesex, oversaw the proceedings. The fatalities included Eleanor Cooper, age 14, Mary Mulvey, age 30, uh, Thomas Murray, age 3, Hannah Bamfield, age 4, Sarah Bates, 3, Anne Seville, aged 60, Elizabeth Smith, 27, and Catherine Butler, um, 65. Hodgson took the jurors to the scene of the events. They viewed the brewery and the bodies before evidence was taken from witnesses. So the coroner's inquest reached a verdict of an act of God, and the the brewery did not have to pay any compensation. Nevertheless, the disaster, the lost porter, the damage to the buildings, Mm -hmm. and the replacement of the vat cost the company about 23,000 pounds at the time. And they went back into business soon after. Yep. And actually operated at that location until 1921. And at that point, they moved their facilities to the Nine Elms Brewery in Wandsworth. The brewery, the original one, was demolished. And the Dominion Theater was later built on the site. Moen Company went into liquidation in 1961. So they were around for a long time after that. As a result of the accident, large wooden tanks were phased out. And uh, they've been replaced with concrete-lined vessels. It's widely thought that because the people who perished in this accident were in pretty much a slum, Mm. that their lives really didn't account for much. And so they were more concerned about the destruction of the buildings and the loss of the beer than anything else. And so there was... Absolutely no legal repercussion laid on the Mo Brewing Company, other than they had to repair their own facilities. They didn't have to compensate the families who died. Because it was an act of God. It was an act of God. Yeah. Wow. The Great Beer Flood of London. That was really interesting. I've never heard of that. I never had either. I guess I'd rather have beer than molasses, though, really. If I was given a choice of a flood to be caught in, I would think beer, fine. Well, it's not as sticky. Plus, you could have a little sip of it. You're too sticky. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I would agree. Beer. Um, At the very least, it's it's not as uh, viscous, and uh, there wouldn't be the the likelihood that you're getting stuck in it. Which happened in the Great Molasses Flood. There were people that actually were were caught in large pools of molasses and couldn't escape. Mm. I can't think of a worse way to go. Dying in a flood of beer, okay, fine. <laughs> Sign me up. Molasses, no, not yeah. so much. Molasses, I think, preys on my internalized 1980s child fear of quicksand. Yes. Uh, you know, which I thought was going to be a much bigger problem than it turned out to be. <laughs> and now, that thing in the middle. Do you ever wonder why barns are painted red? Many years ago, choices for paint sealers and other building materials didn't exist. Farmers had to be resourceful in finding or making paint that would protect and seal the wood on their barns. Now, hundreds of years ago, many farmers would seal their barns with linseed oil, which is orange-colored oil derived from the seeds of the flax plant. To this oil, they would add a variety of things, often milk and lime, but also ferrous oxide or rust. 
Rust was plentiful on farms, and because it killed fungi and mosses, it was a very effective sealant, and of course that turned the mixture red in color. But where did the rust in the ground come from? Well, it took a star collapsing in order for it to get there. Simply put, dying stars become bogged down with heavy elements to the extent that they die, and the final moments can be very dramatic. When stars die, they generate a bunch of iron and explode. So it can be said that barns are red because stars exploded billions of years ago. Your New Year's resolution for 2021? Just tell one friend to subscribe to this podcast. And if you don't, we know where you live. Remember, this is The Box of Oddities. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for The Box of Oddities is provided in part by listeners like you on Patreon. You can support us too. Go to patreon.com slash box of oddities. Thank you. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Kristen writes, uh, Kat and Jethro, you won't believe this shit. Why can't I talk? <laughs> You won't believe this shit. So I'm sitting at my desk last week. I'm a high school teacher, an English teacher. It sucks about as bad as one might imagine right now. All masked up and distant. And I'm helping a student edit a paper about clothing and the social implications slash regulations slash etc. of clothing in our country's history as it pertains to personal identity. She has an entire section on the Puritans, but she was leaving out a key term, when referencing their dress guidelines. At the exact moment, and I mean as though I was transcribing it, I typed the phrase, just as Kat was saying it, sumptuary laws. What? What? <sighs> she says, sumptuary laws? 
Seriously? Who else says that? Boo effect, mic drop. Thanks, I guess Kristen. so. Holy crap. Wow. That's weird. I thought it would be appropriate to start the new year this way. What you got for me? What, what you, what, what you, what you got for me? What, 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 what you got for me? <laughs> yep, yep. All right. Um, so, okay. We... Haven't heard that in a while. No, it's right? been a while. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. All right. I want to tell you today about Ashrita Furman. All right. So Ashrita was born in 1954 in Brooklyn, New York. As a child, he was fascinated with the Guinness Book of World Records. Like so many kids, I was the same. Oh, I yeah. had one. It was a huge, like, hardcover. It had a sparkly cover. It was a whole thing. I read all of the the world records over and over again. I dreamed that someday I might myself break a world record. I got a copy of the paperback version in Ooh. the stocking, in my stocking for Christmas when I was 10. Aww. And we did the same thing. My best friend growing up, guy lived in the neighborhood. Uh, he and I decided that we were going to pick out one of the uh, one of the world's records and break it. Oh. And so we decided it was going, going to be for holding one's breath. Oh, okay. And That's a dangerous one to practice. Yeah. I'm just going to say we broke his lawn furniture when we fell off the porch. Oh, no. We'll just leave it at that. We were unsuccessful, needless to say. Furman was the son of lawyers. And when he was in school, he said he was a nerd. And he didn't get into sports because he didn't think that they uh, provided enough or demanded enough mental power. Okay. Uh, they weren't. They were a waste of time. They weren't mind nourishing. So he was more excited by intellectual rigor than athletics. And it became an obsession with the Guinness Book of World Records. He was quite captivated by them. But he thought that because so many of those records did involve athleticism, that it was kind of a catch-22. Um, so he didn't have any of those athletic skills that would be required to capture a world record. He was under this impression that physical strength was vital. I just punched the microphone with my coffee cup, sorry. <laughs> he thought that he had to be like a jock in order to break these world records. Okay. He's quoted as saying, maybe the fact that I was born four days after the Guinness World Records book was first conceived in September 1954 had something to do with it. Hmm. Uh, that was also the year Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. Or maybe it was the sense of perfection about being the best at something that attracted my interest. Whatever the reason, I remember pouring through the book as a kid, filling my head with all those spectacular superlatives. Furman started practicing uh, the religion of Sri Chinmoy, and that association with the religion, which was so uh, focused on meditation and mm -hmm. transcendentalism mm -hmm. and perfection and uh, growth and focus, uh, encouraged him to participate in a 24-hour bicycle race in Central Park in 1978. The whole point of this self-transcendence was about overcoming limitations and uh, understanding deeply that nothing is impossible. Mm. So when he 
took part in this bicycle race with only two weeks training uh, and tied for third place, he kind of got this huge confidence boost that, Mm. wow, yeah, you know, with meditation, I can pretty much do whatever I want. He got this confidence and this inner joy, and he had this unending energy. He decided that he wanted to break a world record as a way to tell people about meditation. Not necessarily to get his name in the book, though that, you know, is pretty cool also. But his philosophy is other human beings have broken these records. I'm a human being and I know how to meditate. So why can't I break these records? So he trained for hours over the course of several weeks and in six hours 45 minutes in 1979, Furman set his first official record by doing 27,000 consecutive jumping jacks. How does the body hold up? Meditation. Meditation, apparently. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, That landed him a spot in the 1980 edition. And if you look up the world record for jumping jacks, you're actually going to find a lot of records for jumping jacks. (laughs) There's the most jumping jacks in one minute, of course, Mm. Uh, most jumping jacks while listening to Eye of the Tiger, most (laughs) jumping jacks in 10 seconds, most jumping jacks while wearing a top hat, most jumping jacks uh, in 30 seconds. You got to draw the line somewhere, Guinness. Come on. You can't. I hold the record for most jumping jacks in my bedroom while wearing nothing. See, I'm a record holder. I don't think you do hold that record. I do too. I've never seen you do a jumping jack. That's because I do them alone. (laughs) It's a private thing. It's very, very personal to me. I can't be distracted because I'm meditating while I'm jumping jacking. Most jumping jacks in one minute while holding deer antlers. That's dangerous. It's it's a thing. (laughs) I would say that just jumping jacking, just jump jacking, jump, what is the jump, jumping jacking? Jumping and jacking. I would say that doing that in the nude is dangerous anyway. Especially if you're carrying deer antlers. Right? So anyway, uh, this became an obsession for him. He decided he was going to hold as many world records as he could. And part of the way that he worked toward that was by doing what we were just talking about, pioneering in creating new records to set. I see. So he converted an indoor rower with wheels and brakes and rode 1,500 miles in 16 days in 1991. (laughs) So there you go. There's a new record. He somersaulted the entire 12.2-mile route of Paul Revere's Midnight Ride in Massachusetts. (laughs) He rode a unicycle backward for 53 miles. As of 2011... He'd established approximately 350 new records that are recognized by Guinness Book of World Records. In April 2009, Furman became the first person to hold 100 Guinness World Records at once. He was... So that's a record in and of itself. It is. He worked for a, a health food store, but he was also a tour manager for his meditation group, and that allowed him to travel extensively. As of 2014, Furman had set world records in 40 countries. Wow. Another record. world record. Yeah, okay. He has the fastest mile while hula hooping, which he set in the Australian outback. Uh, the, he chin balanced the tallest pole in Turkey. He ran the fastest mile bouncing on a yoga ball on the Great Wall of China. He has the furthest distance while balancing a pool cue at the Great Pyramids in Egypt. 
He holds the record for jumping rope on a pogo stick in Cambodia and most eggs balanced end to end, which he uh, broke that record in New York. The number, by the way, is 888. Really? Wow. Furman also developed the sport of gluggling, which is underwater juggling, which he did for 48 <laughs> minutes, by the way, and holds the record at Kelly Tarleton's Antarctic Encounter and Underwater World in New Zealand. I'm guessing he had a scuba tank. Or some sort of breathing apparatus. He didn't hold his breath for 48 minutes. Oh, I didn't look that that much into that one particular. Okay. I don't know. I'm guessing that's impossible. Maybe he had a, a like a one of those sticks that's hollow in the middle, um, like a reed from a river, a river reed that has- A snorkel? <laughs> no, no. That would be something that you'd have to find naturally. Oh, I see. Like yeah. in those movies in the <laughs> 80s where this, the um, yeah. quicksand was a real issue. Right. You also had to find reeds that you could breathe. <laughs> yeah. It was, a, it was a matter of survival. Right. In the 80s. <sighs> they actually they actually sold those little hollow reeds like they do the thing that you can break the windshield out with. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Just, you know, planning ahead, a preventative strike, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> Furman has now become one of the very few people to have broken a world record on every single continent. He also holds the record for most candles on a birthday cake, in which he and several other members of his spiritual community gathered to light 72,585 <laughs> candles on a cake to honor what would have been Sri Chinmoy's 85th birthday. How big was this cake? It was a pretty big cake. Oh, my God. Pretty big cake. It must have been acres. It just looks like fire. Yeah, I'm sure it, it does. It does not look like <laughs> candles on a cake. It just looks like a bunch of fire. I'm just going to put this over here with, with the rest, rest of, of the, the fire. fire. In an interview with uh, New York Times, it became apparent that Furman is always preparing for one of these upcoming record-breaking events. Like, always. He's still doing it. Yeah. Oh, my God. The article described how when they were discussing his converting from Judaism to Sri Chinmoy, he was doing crunches. And when they discussed that People magazine called him to be on their 50 most eligible bachelors list, <laughs> he was skipping. And he also <laughs> made note that he doesn't date, so he couldn't be on the list. He, I see. He declined the offer because he is... Um, Dedicated. Nope. I'm so Crampy? unfamiliar with this, <laughs> this theory that yeah. I can't even remember the name of it. Celibate. Oh. There we go. I, uh, <laughs> huh. And uh, which gives him a lot of time sure, to, sure, um, sure. yeah. Uh, so it's hard to keep track of all of the records that he currently holds because they're so often being broken. And sometimes they're broken before, you know, long before he even learns that they've been broken. And there is a world record breaker in London who for a while was intentionally going after Furman and breaking his records and he oh, made it like a personal thing yeah. and Furman said that at one point he went to get one of his records back from this London guy and the first day that he was training he injured himself and he took that as a sign that he made it too personal oh. it was more about him and his ego sure. and that's why which I think is really cool that it is yeah, yeah. so anyway um he also, by the way, has the record for the farthest distance trekked balancing a bike on his chin, the most fire torches lit and extinguished in one minute, the fastest mile on a pogo stick, longest time to hula hoop underwater, most arrows broken with his neck in one minute. <laughs> 
and the greatest distance traveled on a bicycle balancing a milk bottle on his head. He is dedicated. Yeah, he's insistent. He's not going against any one person, that it's against the ideal, and that when someone breaks one of his records, he sees it as that they have just raised the bar of humanity, and it's his job to do the same. That is a wonderful attitude to have, and it must be incredibly freeing. Right, because it's not about him. It's about the betterment of people Hmm. as a whole. And he's just, even in just the way he speaks, you can tell he's filled with joy. It is just a joy to him to train for these things and experience these things and go these places and teach people about what the human body can do. And the range of things that he has done so successfully, it really does show that his meditation and his inner joy and purpose must have something to do with it because there's no way you can be that good at balancing shit on your chin and hula hooping underwater and you know all this without there being some sort of central skill and that seems to be his control over his his body and his mind and his focus yeah and not letting things in the periphery Mm. distract him from what he's doing right which is why he doesn't date Probably. Probably. Probably is. He has been the subject of a mini documentary. It's about 28 minutes long about his quest. It's called The Record Breaker. Hmm. I really think we should watch that. And in case you are curious, yes, Ashrita Furman holds the Guinness World Record for the most Guinness World Records. Well, there you go. There you go. Can't can't beat that. Well, you could. You could. But you'd have to train and learn to meditate. Yep. (laughs) Wow. Fascinating. The full list of world records that he holds is nuts. Golf ball. Ball bouncing on a golf club, mountain climbing on stilts, grape catching in mouth, oh my God. catching ping pong balls with chopsticks, walking on shovels as stilts, knife catching. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, that's that's incredibly uh, impressive. And, and when I think back to the one attempt that I made mm. of holding my breath, mm-hmm. I don't even remember what the world record was at the time. Um, but I think I got to maybe... A little, like maybe a minute and a half. Maybe you hold the world's record for most patio furniture demolished while trying to break a world record. I bet I do. (laughs) I'm so proud of you. Thank you. (laughs) I bet if we all look deeply enough, we can find something that we've all done that would be considered a perfect moment or a (laughs) record-breaking event. I sometimes think I might hold the world record for number of times I've tried to push up my glasses when I'm not wearing my glasses. (laughs) I hold the record for discreetly scratching myself at the grocery store. <laughs> anyway, listen, you guys, this weekend, this uh, the 10th of January 2021 is the next time we open up the phone lines. It's the Sunday phone calls with the Freak Fam, and we're looking forward to talking with you. You can get all the details on Patreon. See, I didn't say Patreon. So no, I, I caught that. You did yeah. such a good job. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah. yeah. We, if you're not a member of the Order of Freaks, and specifically the Inner Circle, which is the most hallowed ground um, for the Order of Freaks, the Inner Circle gets our home phone number, and we open up the phones. So we can get a chance to talk with you. Yeah. And we're thinking, what, what time? We thought about five, maybe? Yeah, around five o'clock. Something that's, like that. That's five Eastern here in the U.S. 
Oh, and also thank you to everyone uh, who is supporting us on Patreon. We were able to make our second uh, big fat donation to charity uh, based on your votes. That's right. That's another thing that we do when you become a member of the Order of Freaks. Every month we take 10% of all the revenue that's generated on Patreon, on our Patreon page. Not everybody's. Um, and we donate it to a charity of your choice. We put up a, um, a poll and the winner gets the money. And we've done that now every month since we launched the Patreon page and our pledge is to continue doing it. So thanks to those of you who are supporting us. And, uh, for those of you who are thinking about it, now's a good time. Cause then you'll get to help us choose the next charity. We look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast On Twitter at Box of Oddities And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast Copyright 2021 All rights reserved If you like this podcast Can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.